All right. <clears throat> Let's get started. So a few things before we do the questions. I have the questions left over from last night, and there weren't too many. Um, so I'll go over those. But also, I just wanted to, a few questions that people asked. I figured it's just easier to talk about them um, with everybody instead of writing a note. So are we able to take any uh, afternoon, evening meditations outside, walking or sitting? So you're always welcome to meditate, uh, to walking meditate outside um, during sessions. Uh, but if during uh, official sessions, we ask you if you're going to sit to please sit in the meditation hall. Um, you may be like me and, and may enjoy being by yourself out in the woods, you know, to meditate. Um, but uh, for the official sessions, please try to meditate together uh, with the group um, so that you can be a support for others. Um, and uh, <clears throat> otherwise, then, uh, you know, for walking, if you want to go outside, you can. Or if it's, an un if it's not an official meditation session, then you can walk outside or sit outside. The other one is a question about uh, Visaka House. There's a smell of gas around Visaka House. This is normal. This has been going on for a while. Um, we've had uh, our guys come multiple times to check in case there was something wrong, and they say there's nothing wrong. It's just part of this, the smell of gas out there. Um, yeah, to close the windows so that it doesn't go inside. Yeah. yeah. And another question was about the. Um, the trees and such in there about uh, some some of them might have conditions and things like that and that's true we have people who come weekly and take care of the plants and um, we've had ongoing issues with the uh, plants and stuff like that um, different issues with the different plants so it's not it's something that we're well aware of and we have people taking care of it All right, to the questions. What is one comes never again to birth in the womb mean? <clears throat> it means that you've attained the deathless. You've become awakened. You are never born again. And hence, when you're not born again, you don't die again. Hence, the deathless. So one comes never again to birth in the womb. It means no more birth. You're done. <clears throat> if we should be free from desire, why build such a beautiful meditation center? Looking at it makes me wish there were more beautiful things in the world. It's actually pretty simple. And if you've ever been to some of those places where you have to you know, pay $1,000 a week to go there, you can, you'll see that Bhavan is actually <laughs> pretty very simple and um, you know, rustic. And, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> a lot of this stuff comes from the people who want to give, right? Many times they want to give the best, right? They want to give so much. Like this um, meditation hall 
was designed by uh, Kathy's husband. Uh, Kathy is our, um, our uh, office manager, right? <clears throat> and it was built by uh, Kathy's husband and Bhante Rahula and a bunch of different people. They built this, and this was donated. The money w- was donated by Thai community, right? <clears throat> so many different people came together for this to be built, right? And to build all these different kutis and everything like this. And people like to, um, when they practice generosity, they like to give the best. That's why there's like an obesity epidemic in a lot of the Buddhist countries among the monks. Because they're getting all the best food. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what this is. It's it's not uh, necessarily built... You know the the monks in in many ways um, are not involved in every little intricate thing and things like that, right? The the lay people help a lot and they put input and they design and they do things and <clears throat> that's what they do. Once the mind is calm and peaceful, does wisdom insight arise automatically? Is it already within us? Thanks for being our teacher. That's to you, Bhante, because this is an old question. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> no, um, I wouldn't say that they necessarily arise automatically. The <clears throat> what happened? What is it? May those with many legs not harm me. You can put it right out the door there if you want. Save yourself a trip. So as I was saying in my guided meditation this morning, when I was talking about being able to see more details of the breath as your mind becomes more calm and peaceful, think of a calm and peaceful mind as a tool for investigating with Vipassana. Vipassana means to see deeply, to see through. You're seeing what the three characteristics of existence. You're seeing how things rise and fall. All of these things that the Buddha tells us to look for, this is what we're seeing. So it's not necessarily that you just, all I have to do is make sure that my mind is calm and peaceful and then I'm going to become awakened. No, it's a little bit more than that. Because then all it would take is to be able to sit for a long period of time and just be calm and then, boom, you're done. Right? So you have to use that calm and peaceful mind as part of an investigation into dhammas, right? investigating that experience. Right? The more calm and peaceful and deep um, your mind is, the more you can see. Right? You, you come to a jhana retreat and you hear Bhanteji talk about jhanas. He'll talk about the fourth jhana and this, the serenity and how in the fourth jhana you can see things more deeply than you ever could before. Right? And so the fourth jhana is kind of like the pinnacle of a mind that is in samadhi, 
in one-pointedness, calm, tranquility. So <clears throat> the Buddha, you know, and as was said before, I don't remember which Bhante, but the, these, these Samatha-related um, uh, practices existed before the Buddha, right? And the Buddha practiced them and learned from the, the teachers, and he practiced, and, you know, they say that you could even um, go into these things for seven days. It's like, it's a Monday, like, Oh, I don't want to deal with this week. I'm just going to go and meditate for seven days, right? And so you just go in, and then you wake up, and it's you know it's it's Sunday, and you come out, and what's changed? What's still there? Dukkha. <laughs> You're suffering. It's just like taking drugs or playing video games or whatever. You can just you can chill out for seven days and try to escape the world, but eventually you have to come back, and your dukkha is still there. So you use this calm, tranquil, peaceful mind to investigate, to see the three characteristics of existence and to develop insight into the nature of reality, to see things as they are. And then wisdom and insight arises. I seem to be a judgmental person. Welcome to the human, human club. That's normal of others and of myself. How can I become more generous-minded? When you really investigate your mind as you're practicing, right, and you see all the judgments that arise, you can see, okay, the teacher says, I'm supposed to follow my breath, you know, and then you keep getting distracted away, and you get agitated, right? Like in the agitation is related to, oh man, I can't even follow my breath. I can't believe this. I'm such a horrible meditator. You know all these things. All that judgment is coming through, right? And then eventually you get to see how you're judging the judgment. Well, I shouldn't be. I'm a meditator. I shouldn't be so judgmental, right? All of this stuff you see in your practice. One of the things when somebody asked me years ago, what was one major thing? that you noticed in difference from your, the, you know, before you started your practice to after. And I said that my self-judgment is almost eradicated. I can't say it's not. It's still there. But compared to how I was as a regular non-meditator to now, all that self-criticism and self-judgment. I, ha- I quit meditation in the beginning because I couldn't follow the, the sit for 30 minutes and follow your breath. and I couldn't do any of that. And I got so negative. It was like, ah, you know, I'm, I suck as a meditator, all these things, right? And I quit. <clears throat> and when I came back, I was, thankfully, I was found teachers like Ajahn Brahm who talked about being kind to your mind and your body and all these things. And I was like, oh, okay, right? <clears throat> so this judgment, you observe this, you investigate this, and you investigate what it does for you. Is it helping you? Is it harming you? One thing I notice is that the judgment of yourself and the judgment of others are like this. They go hand in hand. Right? Because when you stop judging yourself so harshly, when you, stop, when you uh, let go or minimize the criticism of, that is in your mind so harshly, then you do the same for others. Right? And you do that by understanding the, how the mind works. Because when you start to understand how your mind works, well, guess what? You start to understand how other people's minds work as well. And you forgive yourself for your stupidity. 
and all your, you know, all your faults and all that. And when you do that, you realize, okay, well, why am I, you know, how am I forgiving myself, but I'm being critical about this person? I, I, you know, then so your judgment about other people also drops. But that comes naturally as you practice, as you investigate and you look into your mind and you see um, what is the reality there, <clears throat> right? why you're being so judgmental and so critical of yourself. And, and when you do that, the more you do that, the more naturally you just decide to let it go. Right? Why am I doing this to myself? I'm causing myself suffering. That's the main thing of, of when you investigate and you meditate. You realize how much you cause yourself suffering in so many ways. So the first thing is, it's okay that you're a judgmental person. That's what's coming up in your mind. Second, investigate it, know it very deeply. And as you do, you'll gradually, slowly start to let go of it. Because you'll see how much it causes you suffering. There are other techniques that you can use, like in terms of, so if somebody, you know, cuts you off in traffic, right? <clears throat> the instant, one of the first things we do is we take it personal. We're like, we don't know this person. They don't know us. But we take, you know, that person cutting us off in traffic, like somebody came up to us with a glove and said, I challenge you, boom, right? And smacks you with the glove, right? We take it so personal. You don't know them. They don't know you. You're never going to see them again. But they did something to me, right? We take it so personal. And like, I have to, you know, do something against this injustice that this person has done to me. As you practice and as you meditate, you're like, oh, wait a second. Okay, maybe this person's having a bad day. Maybe they're having a bad life. What is my anger and judgment towards them? How is that going to help them or me? I'm never going to see them again. But... Once this person is long gone on their way, I'm going to be at work and I'm still going to be angry and agitated. And that anger and agitation is going to go out on other people, right? And it's going to build. And then when I go home, it's going to go out on the people I love. All these things. And you realize, what, what is this? Why am I doing this? This is such a waste of time. And you just naturally, slowly, over time, let it go. So that's how you stop being judgmental through insight. Is all desire bad? What about the desire to help others? Even when you know uh, you will inevitably fail and suffer from time to time. Not all desire is bad. Um, you know, there's a sutta where Ananda is asked if there's um, such a thing as good craving. And his response is yes. The craving that leads to the ending of all craving. So there's your answer. What's the, what are good desires? Desires that lead you to practice the Noble Eightfold Path and Dhamma that leads to the ending of your suffering and of your craving. Those are good desires. Right? The desire to do things that are skillful for yourself and others as opposed to harmful for yourself and others. Now, you've got to be really careful, though, when things like this. What about desire to help others? We, can, we fool ourselves all the time. It's very easy to distract ourselves. Well, I am so good a person. I, my desire is to go and help others. And you do all kinds of unskillful things because of it. Or you avoid your own problems because of it. How many times I've seen people like, 
I am such a good person. I want to go help this person and this person, this person. And what they're doing is they're avoiding their own issues, their own problems with themselves. Right? So <clears throat> desire to help others is a good thing. But you have to be very careful of the intentions behind that. Intention is everything in Buddhist practice. And watching your intentions, you see how your mind lies to you and how your mind tries to convince you and trick you of things. You say, ah. Oh. In the Buddhist tradition, it's the, you see this in um, when Mara, the evil one, the tempter, goes to different monastics and tries to convince them. And they say, I see you, Mara. Right? And then it says Mara becomes dejected and goes away. Right? So that's seeing. When you, when you see how your mind is lying to you and tricking you and all that stuff, then you see Mara. You see the deceiving part of your mind. Right? And then you can know the reality behind your intentions. Intention is very important. Tips on developing a stronger metta practice. Practice. Do it every day. Metta, just like anything, takes practice, doing it over and over and over and over again. Every time I do a guided metta meditation at the end, after we've given metta for all beings in the universe, I say, if you're blissed out with goodwill for all beings, good. If not, that's okay too. Right? Because it might not, you might not do it in the first time. It might take something a long time, lots of practice, 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 practice. Developing that mind state that inclines towards goodwill, towards beings. That inclines towards um, not believing and not instantly following the part of your mind that wants to put people in us versus them and we like these people and we don't like these people and you know I have to protect my people and I hate those people all of that stuff right you practice metta over time over time over time and that breaks through it right metta is very very important metta you know one there's we have three akusalamulas three unwholesome roots of our actions one of them is ill will hatred aversion Metta practice directly counteracts one of those three. Metta goes directly against ill will. The purpose of metta is the the complete eradication of any ill will in every little nook and corner of your mind. Totally abandoning ill will in your mind. And that takes time. Sometimes you gotta fake it till you make it even. You gotta keep practicing <clears throat> doing, you know, um, whatever teachings that you are hear, whatever practices that you know, you practice it over time. You know, um, what visualizations and words and all that kind of stuff. The point of metta is you're developing a um, a mind free of ill will and warm hearted good feelings of friendship and goodwill for all beings. Right? There's a poem I always love to use when I teach metta. It's by Edward Markham. It's called Outwitted. And it goes like this. They drew a circle that cut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. I drew a circle that took them in. That's metta. That's what you're practicing. You're practicing going against all of our ingrained, innate, 
us first them, I like these people, I don't like these people, all of that. Metta destroys barriers. Metta is for all beings everywhere, limitless. <clears throat> and so every day, practice a little bit, trying to give the benefit of the doubt to people. Right? Practicing, developing, giving metta out to people, just waving. Even you know what you can even do basic, you know, what I call basic metta practices, like opening the door for people and waving to people and saying hello to people and all that. When I give metta retreats in New York City, I have the people go walking meditation out in the city. And I say, because we're in a silent retreat, I say, talk to the people, say hello, you know, get, wish them good luck and all these. And of course, these, you know, city people are walking by like, who are all these people and what are they doing? <laughs> but it's a, it's a fun thing. So developing metta is um, little by little, consistently practicing over time. And you'll see that it will build. And it will become a very important and wonderful part of the practice. When you are so blissed out on metta that you can be, have goodwill for all beings, even the people, that, people that, that the average person revile and hate the most, right? Um, then you know, oh, my metta is working. Metta is very good. So. How to deal with sensations of apathy in one's practice? Um, investigate it. Observe it. What are you being apathetic about? Right? You have to know these things. Um, you can understand how the apathy arises. Why? What were the conditions that were set for that apathy to arise? What are the specific things that the, the apathy um, are in conjunction with? Because we're not apathetic about everything. And when we're apathetic, we're apathetic about some things. So you really want to investigate and understand that goes for pretty much all phenomena. It's like the second factor of awakening is called Dhamma Vichaya. It means investigation of Dhammas, investigation of phenomena. If it exists, you can investigate it. You can observe it. You can see how it arises. You can see how it ceases. Right? Now, of course, you're not going to see that all at once one time. You have to keep looking at it over time. And then you, the more you look at it, the more insight you develop from it. So you have to so don't try to push it away because anytime you try to push something away in the practice it fights back 10 times harder. You understand I have apathy in me and you understand this is how it's arisen and you understand well when I'm apathetic I act in such and such a way and this way is harmful to myself and others or beneficial to myself and others or whatever. You investigate how all of how this mind state affects you and your actions. <clears throat> Why are the Buddha's ears depicted as low-hanging? <clears throat> so, <clears throat> these are, there's an ancient Brahmanic tradition um, that uh, stems from India at the time called the 32 Marks of a Great Person. And uh, <clears throat> these are things that, um, that kind of migrated over from that tradition into Buddhism um, in various ways. So that's really what that is. Um, it, simply that this is one of the marks that um, can be seen to, to make that uh, the person's a great person.
How Angulimala attained Nibbana without meditation. There are other similar situations where Gautama Buddha delivered a sermon and he, she attained Nibbana immediately. I'm not sure that in the Angulimala, um, in the story that he attained it immediately. I'm pretty sure it wasn't that way. I think it's one of those, and it usually it will be like, and he became a monastic, and after some time he became awakened. So I'm pretty sure Angulimala <clears throat> um, was not immediately, you know, after the direct confrontation, the direct thing that he had with the Buddha, where the Buddha said, I have stopped Angulimala, you stop, right? Very powerful words. Um, I'm pretty sure that it wasn't an instant thing. Um, but, you know, one of the, the, the tradition around Angulimala um, comes like later people have kind of flushed out the story and they say that, you know, he was, um, you know, he was a practitioner under his previous master and he had practiced previous lives and such and such. And so this is, um, you know, uh, there to explain why he would have um, become awakened. It's, it's actually... In all honesty, it, even in the suttas, it's fairly rare for somebody to become instantly awakened when the Buddha was talking. They may become a sotapanna or different levels, um, but most often, <clears throat> you know, because you have to have had a, a certain amount of karma and the groundwork had to be set so that all you needed was just words from the Buddha, and then you became awakened, right? Um, but Angulimala the, is which is one of my favorite Buddhist stories. Is there anybody who doesn't know who Angulimala is? All right. So Angulimala is the Buddhist serial killer. Angulimala um, was a, uh, <clears throat> to me, is one of the greatest stories of redemption in Buddhism. All right. So the Angulimala is somebody who um, was told by his teacher. So the story goes that you know he was a very promising student. He was going to take over from his teacher. The teacher was jealous. The teacher you know, basically told him to go and, and get, you know. So, Anguli, finger. Mala, necklace. So, this is a person who wore a necklace of fingers. So, the teacher basically told him to go out and take a finger from every person that he killed. And the story goes that the, the last person, 999th person, or the 1,000th person, I should say, was going to be Angulimala's mother, whoever was going to walk down. And so the Buddha walked down, um, and they said, he said, Master, don't go down there. There's this famous serial killer, etc., etc. And of course, the Buddha's awakened. That doesn't bother. (laughs) So he goes down there, and Angulimala is trying to chase him. And Angulimala is like running on a treadmill. He can't find, he can't get to the Buddha. And Angulimala says, Stop. And the Buddha turns around and says, I have stopped Angulimala. You stop. And he says, I have stopped harming beings. I have stopped doing these deeds, etc., etc. And so then the Angulimala um, became a, a, a monk. And then the king was coming out. The king was like, oh man, these people keep complaining about this guy. I have to go out, get a task force and go kill Angulimala. So he goes out. And he meets the Buddha, and he's a you know he's a uh, disciple of the Buddha, or at least has talked to the Buddha multiple times. And then he, um, you know, uh, the king says, 
you know, blessed one, I'm looking for Angulimala, the famed, the serial killer. <clears throat> and Buddha says, what if I were to say, to tell you that Angulimala has become a monastic? And the, the king said, well, I would bow and pay respects to this person. And he goes, this is Angulimala. And so then they paid respects. And, and um, now, of course, people who, you know, he terrorized didn't forget about that because even though then he became awakened and he was a monastic and he was going into the town and they were still throwing rocks at him and doing all kinds of stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> and he asked the Buddha what to do and the Buddha says, endure it. All right? <clears throat> so this is the story of Angulimala, right? somebody who was a, a killed 999 people but was able to turn his life around and become awakened. So if Angulimala can do it... <laughs> Anybody can do it. We can do it. So, Angulimala is a great story. What does the Buddha say about judging other people? Well, I I basically talked about that, but if you go in the meditation hall, um, not the meditation hall, the the Sangha hall, right by... um, you know, where it says private monastic area, etc., there's a, there's a picture under it, and it has a flower, right? And it has a quote from the Buddha in there, and it says, <clears throat> do not look at the omissions and commissions of others. So do not, do not look at what other people have done, but look at what you have done and left undone, right? So that is the Buddha directly saying, don't be so wrapped up in what other people have done. Oh, this person, that, this person. Pay attention and look at what you're doing, what you have done and what you have left undone. Right? So you can go in the, you know, after this, later on, you can go out and you can see that, um, that wonderful quote. <clears throat> so that's what the Buddha says about judging other people. The Buddha also says there are three conceits I am greater than is a conceit. I am less than is a conceit. And I am equal to is a conceit. Right? What he's saying there is, when we, have a, when we have this idea of self, then we compare. So, once you understand that there is no self, then there's nothing to compare to. So, this is, when you compare, I'm better than that person. Oh, I'm less than that person. All this stuff. All of that is a conceit. Do monks vote when in a democratic society? Um, It's up to them if they want to. Uh, You know, it's a a personal choice, I would say. How do you resist the urge of thoughts related to becoming enlightened or I am becoming a better meditator while meditating? It seems hard because the nature of meditating provokes them. When you re- this might happen, but then 10 minutes later, you have an insight that shows you how stupid you are. <laughs> right? <clears throat> the practice balances that out. You go there, oh, I've become awakened. I'm so... And then it goes away, right? Like I've had many profound experiences, even some insights and some mental states that have lasted long periods of time, even for weeks, right? But then 
by that time, a lot of times what I realized was all of that is impermanent, right? It'll come and you can get really deluded. Like there's a lot of people who come to the jhana retreats and they're like, I am a jhana practitioner and all these things. And they're, they're quite deluded, to be honest with you. Um, <clears throat> you can just tell in how they act and what the questions they ask and all of these kind of things. <clears throat> so it's very easy to be deluded. As a matter of fact, I was just, uh, my, my last travel teaching, I went to a place in Virginia and they gave me this book by this person. It's called Halfway Up the Mountain. And it's about people who mistakenly believe that they were awakened, right? <clears throat> so there's this person did this whole scholarly, you know, <laughs> examination of this concept. So important thing to understand is that you can really get deluded by thinking, "Oh, I am awakened." So <clears throat> after time, after many years, if you see these kind of ups and downs, you realize, okay, you know, I'm not worried about this stuff anymore. All I know is that I just need to follow the path. Whatever happens, usually one of the things that I realized fairly early on was that insights don't arise when you want them to. They come when you've set the groundwork and they come when they want to. Right? There's like, man, I want to go to this retreat. I hope I get all kinds of insights in this retreat. And you leave the retreat and you're like, damn, where were all the insights? <laughs> right? I really struggled through and I did all this and that. And then like three months later, you're doing something mundane. You're like on the line at the grocery store and boom, the insight comes. Whoa. Okay. And then you see that connection of all the practice that you've done and the insight that it's arisen. So you kind of, my experience at least has been is that you, the more you understand and you see how these things come and go and you, and you just get to the point where I know that all I need to do is follow this noble eightfold path. I don't know if I'll become awakened in this life. I don't know when I'll get insights or when or this or that or whatever. I just have to keep following the path. Follow the path. That's all. Then and then, when that happens, and <clears throat> you don't have to worry about this. Will I become enlightened? All these kind of things. Um, you just know that eventually you will. Okay. Somebody asked the Buddha, you know. Um, Will, under your dispensation, you know, will half of all beings become awakened or a third of all beings or whatever? And the Buddha says, I'm not concerned with how many beings become awakened. But what I do know is that those who will become awakened will do so following the Noble Eightfold Path. So you have a path. You just keep going down the path. You keep practicing. And eventually, you'll get there. I am becoming a better meditator. See, my experience is like, it's just like the minute you think that, something just happens and you're just knocked down. You're just like, your humility just, you know, <laughs> boom. Oh, really? You're a better meditator, huh? Okay. <clears throat> so the practice tends to, if you're honest and sincere and open in the practice, the practice tends to help you keep that balance. Because, you know, one second you're all, oh, I'm the best meditator in the world. And the next you're like, oh, man. <laughs> right? So the practice will help you keep that balance. You just keep practicing. <clears throat> That's a personal question. I'll save that for last. Get through the important questions first. If one is practicing the Dhamma, can they be assured of a human rebirth? Oh, they might even have a heavenly rebirth. <clears throat> right? If you're doing good deeds 
and you're practicing well, then, you know, according to uh, the Buddha, then you will have the resulting uh, results, you know, the corresponding results. So practicing the Dhamma. Now, the important thing to understand, the ultimate goal of the Dhamma, right? The ultimate goal is awakening, to go the full way so that you've abandoned human rebirth. But now, of course, not everybody has that goal in this very life. But you just keep practicing the Noble Eightfold Path. You keep practicing the path, then you will <clears throat> become awakened. Now, basically, when you die, unless you become a Sotapanna, a stream enterer, it's essentially like you might as well, you can roll the dice as to what your next life is going to be. <clears throat> because in our past lives, we've done everything. <clears throat> I tell people in our past lives, we've been Hitler. And in our past lives, we've been Mother Teresa. We have so many previous lives worth of karma that we've committed. We don't know what the next life is going to be. It's a mistake to think that what you do in this life is, gonna, is, is linear to exactly how you're going to reborn in the next. It may be that case, but it doesn't always necessarily have to be. As a matter of fact, in the suttas, that's a, that's a, a case for uh, misunderstanding. <clears throat> the Buddha talks about how there are meditators, very advanced meditators, who are able to see. They're able to see a person become you know, reborn. <clears throat> and they're able to see. They see this one person and they see that they were really bad in this life, and next life they were born in heaven. Right? Or they see they were really good in this life, and next life they were born in hell. <clears throat> and, they, and then they come to the wrong conclusion. Well, there's no results of actions. Like, you might as well just do whatever you want. You're just going to get randomly put. So the Buddha talks about this being, this is only seeing half the story. Right? This is only seeing um, partially of what's happening. So you don't know what you're going to be in the next life. Now, those Bhante Ji says this is why Bhante Ji encourages people to become Sotapanas, because then you have a money back guarantee. <clears throat> no more hell realms, no more animal realms, no more any of that, at the very least. <clears throat> and then, even if you're the most lazy stream enter ever, within seven lifetimes you're becoming awakened. So, it's important to know that. Uh, you describe people's fear and sorrow in the face of death, but also the senior monk's peacefulness when the Buddha passed away. Doesn't peacefulness come from acceptance? Yes. Well, <clears throat> it comes from acceptance, but the acceptance comes from insight into the reality of things. Does acceptance come from understanding the Four Noble Truths? Yeah, there you go. I should have read this. <laughs> that there is suffering, death, old age, etc., but also a path that leads to the ending of suffering. Shouldn't people feel joy to have found the Buddhist teachings? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, of course. I mean, these are, these are very rare, powerful teachings in the world, right? And, um, you know, the Buddha talks about how that uh, they will eventually become forgotten, right? So not only are you very, have you done very, very good, skillful um, action in the past to become a human, but you've been born during the time that the Buddhist, this Buddha is teaching, because Buddha is a title. There's many Buddhas before this past Buddha, Buddha Gotama, many Buddhas after. So you've been done very much good deeds to be born as a human and to be able to listen to and practice the Dhamma. 
right? Even as a human, there are many humans that are not going to be able to, to hear the Dhamma or practice it. If you're in places like war-torn places where you're striving, trying to survive every day, just to get basic things like water and things like that, that's very hard to be able to hear Dhamma because you're trying to survive, right? So especially you know, if we're in a country like this where we have the ability and the luxury to go to a, you know, to build a monastery and to go to the monastery for a weekend and all these kind of things. Very good things. <clears throat> to feel joy and gratitude in finding the Buddhist teachings. <clears throat> How can you be sure of reincarnation? I can't. I don't know. I haven't seen it for myself. Right? In the Buddhist tradition, in very deep states of concentration, then you're able to see these things. Right? <clears throat> Whether when you become awakened as one of the triple knowledges, or even you don't even have to have been awakened to supposedly be able to see <clears throat> beings being reborn according to their karma. Right? So you can see that. So until then, it's simply um, a matter of faith and confidence in the Buddha that the Buddha is you know has told us the truth and that you know we should follow this is what have going for refuge in the triple gem is about right or you know for Westerners if you're very kind of you know uh, you know you don't want to kind of deal with karma of previous lives or reincarnation and all that you can shelve it and practice right so I can't be sure of reincarnation. Now, I will say I'm probably at about 95%. I can't say I'm 100% because I really haven't seen it for my own self. But there's enough of um, experiences in my own life and my confidence in the Buddha's teachings for me to be at about 95%. Um, then I'm pretty sure that if I had to bet, I would bet that there is some kind of reincarnation or rebirth. Um, <clears throat> So it depends on uh, it depends on that. Buddhist cosmology seems a little superstitious. How do we reconcile it with come and see for yourself? Kind of like the same thing I was just talking about, really. Um, <clears throat> yeah, you don't know. If there are beings like devas and yakas and nagas and things like that, you don't know. Um, but if you're able to develop your practice, you're able to see things like the, have the divine eye or the divine ear, and you're able to interact with these beings and things like that. Um, so there is the ability, and according to the tradition, to be able to confirm these things um, for yourself. <clears throat> So you have to practice and see for yourself if this is the case. Now, <clears throat> one thing I will say, and I, since I didn't want to get in too detail about it, but since this is kind of backed up the same thing, is if you're kind of getting hung up on the whole thing, devas and yakas and rebirth and karma and all that, <clears throat> I want you to check out what's called the Kalama Sutta or the Kesaputya Sutta. And in this sutta is one of the most famous, among Western circles, one of the most famous paragraphs. Right? 
the, the Buddha comes to a town of Kalama and the people there are confused because all these teachers keep going to the town saying, my doctrine is the best. All these others are horrible. Don't listen to them. And then they leave. Right? And so they're confused. And they're like, the Buddha has a good reputation. Let's ask him. And so this is where the Buddha says then, um, don't go by tradition, by report, by what your teacher says, by what it says in the scriptures, etc., etc., etc. But when you know for yourself that this is, leads to my benefit and the benefit of others, then do it. If it leads to my harm and the harm of others, then don't do it. Right? <clears throat> Buddha even says, don't trust your reason and uh, all of these kind of things because they're all really unreliable. Like your perception, perception is extremely unreliable. But, <clears throat> so, but that's not the most important part of that sutta, at least for me. Because what I had not found until I read it for myself, I had never heard another monastic teach this until I read it for myself. Right? And it was such a surprise when I saw it. So at the bottom half of that sutta, the Buddha gives four assurances. Right? And so the Buddha says that if you follow the practice and you do good, you practice Dhamma, and you follow the practice and you follow the Noble Eightfold Path, and there is something after this life, you're reborn again, well then, you have done good on both terms. You've done good in this life, and you will be reborn in a good place. If you follow this practice and there's nothing after the, this life, then here now in this very life, you live peaceful and content and with goodwill for all beings. Right? So the Buddha is saying there, even if you don't believe in rebirth and karma and, and there's nothing after this life, you still do the practice. Still follow the practice because you can see the benefits here now in this very life. Right? And then the Buddha says another, the, the same thing with the, um, the uh, I'm trying to think of the words, that our actions have consequences. Right? So the Buddha says, if you don't believe, if you believe that your actions have consequences and you practice in that way, practice the Dhamma, then you will have a good rebirth. If there's nothing after this life, then here now in this very life, you practice being peaceful and content and with goodwill for all beings. Right? So that's very important. <clears throat> to me, I, when I first read this, I'm like, this is the key for Westerners right here. Right? People who are kind of, you know, they come from another religion or, or, you know, and they're tired of all that stuff or they're very scientific and atheist or skeptic or whatever. This is, this is the key right there. The Buddha is saying right then and there himself, in this very life you do this practice. Now, of course, this is not saying, the Buddha is very clear in saying that, yes, there are results of your actions, right? Yes, you will be reborn according to your karma. The Buddha does not, is not saying that that's not true. He's very clear in saying that's part of right view. But what he's saying there to those people is, whether you believe it or not, the practice has benefits. The practice leads, you know, what is just like the quality of Dhamma, leads onwards to be realized by the wise. All right, so think about that in terms of all of these things, right? Practice, well, if you really kind of are worried about it and you like spend a lot of time, you know, trying to think about common rebirth and all of that, 
that's taking you away from the practice, right? Getting intellectualizing and, and worrying about all these things. Shelve that and just practice, right? Just practice. But one thing I will say, though, is <clears throat> it's very important that when you do this practice, that you keep an open mind, right? Because if you go into the practice very kind of closed-minded and you know everything about it and this is one of the, all this stuff, you're going to have a lot of cognitive dissonance when your practice starts to show you things that you don't think are true or you don't believe it or whatever. Like one of the biggest ones is the, the, this view that we have a permanent self, right? And you, the practice starts to show you, starts to put some chinks in that armor. You're like, whoa, <laughs> right? And if you're very closed-minded and set in your ways about it, then that's actually going to cause a lot of inner conflict, a lot of strife, right? But if you're very open-minded, then very different. It'll be very peaceful and you can accept, okay, this is what this practice is telling me. And what I will say is, this is going back to metta, right? Metta is eradicating the um, ill will in every part, right? So when we practice metta, we include all beings, even beings you don't even know that may exist, like aliens out in other worlds or whatever, even beings like devas and nagas and yakas. Do you know that they exist? No, you don't know. But you don't want to limit your metta in any way. So you give lots of wonderful metta for all beings and then you start to you be in the woods at night and you feel very protected and you're like oh maybe the yakas and the devas are protecting me like the tradition says right so you don't want to you know you don't want to try to um you want to keep an open mind and practice metta even for beings you don't you don't know they exist or whatever your mind might say oh this is stupid why are you giving metta to these beings it doesn't matter. That's aversion. That's negativity, right? That's, that method can go against that as well. Whatever beings there may be, anywhere, without exception, may they be well, happy, and peaceful. Whether I believe in them or not, whether I see them or not, whether in this dimension or not, whatever, may they be well, happy, and peaceful. Do you think, think the pursuit of nirvana is inherently selfish? Um, no. No. Um, <clears throat> when you practice, the Buddha says there are four types of people in the world. There's lots and lots of four types of people, but this is the one, there's one that I'm going to go over. So there's a person who practices for themselves and not for others. There's a person who practices for others and not themselves. There's the person who practices for neither. That's an interesting character. I don't know <laughs> what they're doing. But the person who practices is for both themselves and others. And which one do you think the Buddha um, you know, praises? The last one. The person who practices for both yourselves and others. <clears throat> Especially um, Theravada has this kind of, um, this, you know, um, what I would say, undeserved reputation for being selfish. Because the Mahayana is like, we have these wonderful bodhisattvas and this way is the selfish way but this way is for all beings and all that stuff. You read the suttas, the Buddha is always talking about yourself and others. Always. And that never stops. It's never about <clears throat> everything you do. You follow precepts. That's a gift to other people. That's a gift to the world. You, you live in such a way that you don't harm beings. You don't steal. The Buddha says that is a gift of fearlessness to all beings. Right? So there's every single aspect of this practice is both for yourself 
and for others. Always. Becoming awakened, both for yourself and for others. <clears throat> right? This is as somebody who's kind of been thrust into this teaching thing a little early in my monastic life. Right? I, I have this balance of like, I have to work on myself then I have to go out and teach people and be with people and answer their questions and help them and all these kind of things, right? And so trying to find this balance between self and others, right? And so recently what I found was that I've been too much in the helping others and not myself. So I have to bring myself back to that so that what I realize and what you understand is I can't help other people if I'm hurting my own practice, right? I can't... (coughs) develop with other people i can't become a better teacher a better practitioner if i'm just teaching like 20 years from now if i didn't practice i would just be saying the same stories and the same thing at the same level but to help more people to be to help other people at a deeper level i have to put in the practice i have to do the work right and so like next year you know i usually i do 10 12 teaching trips out in the world um, a year <clears throat> next year not doing any of it next year is just about me I'm just going to go to monasteries and live with the monks and learn from them and practice right <clears throat> am I being selfish am I doing that just for me no right I'm doing that because I know that <clears throat> what benefits me also benefits others right I want to become awakened but you know it's not a bad deal to want to help other people along the way as well right <clears throat> so that's why I would say no. There's nothing in the teachings, there's nothing in the suttas, there's nothing in the practice that I would say is inherently selfish. In my experience, enjoying the heck out of fine-tasting food is one of my dances which I do not cling to, crave, or avoid. Feel free to comment. <laughs> Are you really? It's like I've heard, like, you know, like in other traditions, it's, the, the traditions can vary greatly. And I remember, like, people talking about, like, in, in other traditions, they say, well, it's like, can I be married and not have no attachment or craving for my partner? Theravada is like, Hell no, are you crazy? <laughs> but in other traditions, they have other views. This is kind of the same thing. Enjoy the heck out of fine-tasting food, right? Enjoyment. Okay, can you understand that this is pleasant-tasting food, right? But then what happens when it's gone? Do you want more of it? Are you craving more of it? Do you, are you sad when it's gone? Then you're attached to it, Right? If you can have, like the Buddha talks about, you know, sometimes the Buddha is given. This goes back to what I was saying about people like to give the best. So the Buddha is walking around with his fancy robe and things like that, and people ask him a question about it. And he says, well, I wear these, I think it was like pumpkin hair robe or whatever, but my my disciples wear rag robes and things like that, right? So the Buddha, it doesn't matter what what he wears, right? He's not attached to it. Whatever people give, right? You're supposed to be content with any kind of robe, any kind of this, any kind of that. So it means sometimes you get good stuff, you're content with it. It's okay. You don't get attached to it. Sometimes you get bad stuff and you're content with it. You don't get averse to it. It's just there. You just use it, right? So, yeah, the 
If it's fine tasting food, doesn't matter one way or the other. Examine your attachment to it, your, your um, relationship with it. Then you can see. Oh, finally, a, a question related to the topic of this talk. <laughs> After all these, <laughs> we're at the end. Now, <clears throat> can you discuss the difference between reflecting on positive memories and therefore sadness after a death versus grasping? So, in the beginning, after you lose somebody, <clears throat> you're going to have these this desire to keep reflecting on all these memories. All this stuff is going to come up. <clears throat> and you know what else is going to come up? The, uh, the feeling of, oh, they're never going to be able to do this. They're never going to be able to do that. They're not going to be able to see my child grow. Or all these kind of things are also going to come up, right? So these, these, all, it's what your mind is trying to grasp this concept that this person that you loved is gone. Right? And you're never going to see them again. Right? Your mind is trying to grasp that. And it's really hard. Your mind doesn't know what the heck it's doing. Right? Especially the first time. Especially if it's somebody really close to you. Like a spouse or a parent or whatever. Right? Your mind is really trying to understand. <clears throat> right? So it will think of all these memories. right? <clears throat> and it will think about what the loss entails. Like, what does this really mean that you've lost this person? <clears throat> and that's normal. Right? That's absolutely normal. Now, positive memories. Right? What positive memories are, in the beginning, they're very, they bring up a lot of sadness. Right? They bring up a lot of oh, <clears throat> thinking about this, right? Because what, that, what, what, what it is is like, I had this wonderful memory with this person. Now they're gone. Now I'm never going to be able to have another memory like that with this person. Right? So it brings up a lot of sadness. But over time, as you've progressed through the stages of grief, and as you've kind of come to um, you know, accept what has happened and, and start to move on and things like that, actually the positive memories are what you remember when you want to reflect on this person. You reflect on... One of the things that <clears throat> I, I missed in my talk is, you know, after you go through all this like, negativity about death and all this stuff, the other end of that is gratitude. The other end of that is, you know, this, the other end of this is, I'm so happy that this person was in my life, even if it was only for a short time. Even though they're gone... And I can't share these memories. I can't make more memories with them. I still have these memories with that person. Right? I still have these good times that I had with this person. And I can remember that and keep that close. And use that um, to help me live a better life. A more skillful life. You reflect, I'm grateful that this person was there to help me to, um, uh, to become the person that I have become. Right? So this is where this <clears throat> comes from, these very uh, positive memories. Right? <clears throat> and over time, all this positivity, positive memories, and the um, gratitude replaces a lot of the sadness. And of course, then 15 years later, you might all of a sudden 
<laughs> go through a bout of sadness again and all these kind of things and that happens. But in general, every day, it becomes about gratitude and positivity as opposed to reflecting on loss and all these kind of things. Now you can do this thing where you kind of get so, you never move forward, right? <clears throat> I guess I have to, I, it's a good example, but I don't, uh, well, I, I'm going to have to, what do you call it? Uh, so I was married when I was in my 20s. She died of cancer 15 years ago. And the reason I say this is because I'm trying to give this example. <clears throat> I was a young person. I was 27. I was a widower, right? And nobody else around me had that experience. Nobody wanted to talk about it, so I needed people like me. So I went on this website, and I found these forums, and I talked to these people, and it was wonderful, right? These people know what I'm talking about. But after a year, two years, I started noticing that there were people who Five, six, seven, ten, fifteen years later, they had adopted that kind of that loss as the kind of like a victim, like a personality. They, I am a widower. I am this. I am that. And they were never able to move forward. Never able to to um, never able to really process this and put it into a positive aspect of your life. And I realized, oh, I don't want to be that way. And this is all kind of a downer. And then that's when I left this, because I was moving forward. I was able to kind of progress and go forward and things like that. So what you don't want is you don't, if, you, if you've moved into that where years and years and years and years and years later, that <clears throat> you're still depressed and you're still a wreck and your life is falling apart and all of that stuff, you've, <laughs> you've, took the, you've taken a wrong turn somewhere and you need to move towards that gratitude and that, um, you know, using these positive memories for a skillful uh, thing that you can integrate into. <clears throat> There's integrating yourself as, I'm a victim, and this always have, this is, this is the total identity of me. And there's, the, there's integrating it to as, this has been part of my life, this experience happened, and this helped me become a better person, and I'm grateful for it. So there's two ways there. Uh, you mentioned some reading suttas that impacted you, which have had the most impact on you. What do you recommend? Um, <clears throat> those five subjects of contemplation, that was probably the first Dhamma I ever read. And I don't necessarily think of it as, as a coincidence that I, after going through all the experiences that I've gone to of death and loss and stuff like that, that that was one of the first things I ever read. Right? When, I re- when I saw that, that was the first experience of me seeing that the Buddha is 100% on point. Right? I saw that and I was like, ah, yes, this is reality. This is truth. Right? And after reading all the other, you know, the suttas and 5,000 pages worth of suttas, and, you know, it just grows. And it's just you say, ah, the Buddha is right. right? The Buddha is so right to the point where I became a Buddhist monk. Right? Because his teachings and all this stuff... And this is another question, why you became a Buddhist monk. <laughs> I wanted to save that for last because it's a personal thing. Right? So <clears throat> this five subjects of contemplation are very important because it's so, it's so in your face. Right? You can get really lost in a lot of like, deep concepts like dependent origination and, and 
not self and all of these kind of things. And until you start to experience that for yourself in your own practice, in reality, it's just con- concepts. It's just intellectualizing. Right? But something like old age sickness and death, right there. Right there in your face. You just have to look at it. So, you know, this kind of uh, five subjects of contemplation is something I still practice to this day. At least I try to do it every day. Sometimes I'm not mindful and I forget. But I try to integrate that as part of my practice every day to reflecting. And even after all these of the years of reflecting on this, I still don't believe I'm going to die, right? <laughs> I'm very hard-headed. It's just the way it is. <clears throat> I'm very full of delusion and ignorance. Um, but this is very impactful. Um, another one is the story of Kisagotomi, which actually I was thinking about saying in the, in the talk, but an hour is such a short time to put in so much information. Um, and I don't have the time to talk about Kisagotomi either because I'm way over time. <laughs> so you can look up the story of Kisagotomi, one of the most um, pr- profound and popular stories about a woman who loses her son and goes to the Buddha to try to get the son to, be co- to come back to life. Very important. I can't, I mean, there's so many. <laughs> there's so many to think about, so many suttas, so many good things that have impacted me greatly, but uh, not enough time. Please correct me if I'm wrong. When a distraction arises in samatha, ignore the distraction and refocus on the meditation. Vipassana, investigate and find the root cause of the distraction. So, <clears throat> When you are sitting down to practice mindfulness of breathing, the main goal is to develop samatha. The main goal is to develop a tranquil mind. That's your main goal when you're sitting down practicing mindfulness of breathing. Now, you might have really strong feelings, like a strong itch or a strong pain that take you away from your watch following your breath. And even though you try to go back to your breath, you can't. Because that strong feeling is so all-encompassing that it's your whole world at the time. That's a good time to switch your object of awareness to that feeling, that pain or that itch, and investigate it deeply. Just like you investigate the, the breath, you know, the cycle of the breath in and out, how it changes, you investigate that feeling. <clears throat> and when you're doing that, then you're, doing, you're delving more into the satipatthana realm. <clears throat> but the important thing to understand here is that there's not as much a distinction between samatha and vipassana as you might think. These days, vipassana is a technique and samatha is a technique. But if you read the ancient texts, you read the early Buddhist texts, there's no such thing as vipassana technique, no such thing as samatha technique. These are states of mind, wholesome states of mind that you use for the development of insight. And what you do is you practice Two things. You practice mindfulness of breathing, and you practice, uh, which is anapanasati, and you practice satipatthana. These are, go hand in hand. They are together. They're essentially, in many ways, the same practice. And if you read the suttas, you can see why. Because in satipatthana, under the section on body, the first thing is mindfulness of breathing. And in mindfulness of breathing sutta, you see how the different of the 16 steps of mindfulness of breathing are connected with the four parts of satipatthana. So these are all essentially one practice. You can think of them as <clears throat> different aspects of one practice. Right? That's the important thing to understand. 
Samatha, <coughs> so developing samatha is for the purpose of seeing deeply. You develop, so samatha is like a firm foundation for the development of insight. Right? And when you have very deep samatha, you can focus, laser focus your awareness to see with vipassana, to see three characteristics of existence, to see the rise and fall, to see the gratification, danger, and escape, to see these things. <clears throat> That's what you do. So just because you're practicing mindfulness of breathing does not mean that you're not practicing some um, uh, vipassana. Right? Your mindfulness of breathing, the first maybe four, eight, twelve steps are samatha, but the last four, seeing impermanence. Right? Then you're going right into seeing with vipassana. Right? So <clears throat> these two practices, anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, satipatthana, foundations of mindfulness, they go together, you practice them together, you carry the ember of mindfulness, whether you're sitting, standing, walking, lying down, you can, it's one practice the whole time, and you use these different um, aspects of the practice in different situations. In Samatha, there are milestones, jhana. Are the similar milestones in Vipassana? Um, yes, awakening. <laughs> no, um, it's come late in later, later on in the tradition, there's what's called the Vipassana jhanas, which is like um, insight, um, oh, what's it called? Uh, insight knowledges, right? And that's not something you see in the early texts, but like in, like, say, like the Mahasi um, tradition and noting tradition, the Vipassana tradition, you see these insight knowledges and they have them mapped out and you can follow them and all these kind of things. Um, but I don't know anything about that. It's, it's, it's not part of my practice. It's not you know, from the earlier texts. Um, but you can look into that um, Mahasi tradition to see that if you want. <clears throat> this is not, isn't a question as much as a comment. Uh, much like hedonistic lifestyle the Buddha lived prior to awakening uh, oblivious in our palaces we avert our eyes from the sick we put our elderly in nursing homes and we live as though we will never die yep thank you for stating thing. oh okay so yeah so yeah it really was just a comment yeah <laughs> Yeah, well, unfortunately, it's a nature of this modern society that our, our um, families just separate. They, like, I grew up around the greatest generation. Like, I was lucky enough. I have three sets of grandparents. Well, all, they're all dead except for one of those grandparents. But, like, growing up, I had, you know. So I was able to have that, um, the wisdom of older people around me. And it was a wonderful thing to have that like extended family system. We didn't all live in the same house, but we were you know close and all that kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> and it's a very it's it's not a good thing that you know what we do to our elderly these days, right? But a lot of it is due to economics and all these kind of things. But you know that's one of the things that I grew growing up. I was like, I do never ever ever want to go into an old folks home. But actually, you should see some of the old folks home today. Oh my God. Like, I mean, my third grandfather, we're trying to get him because he's by himself and he's 93 and he's really stubborn and he wants, you know, and we're trying to, but these places, I mean, like, 
you know, 24-hour care. Da, da, da. I'm like, man, when I was young, old folks' home was like you get thrown in a corner until you die or something. <laughs> so things are improving, but yeah, that's just the way it is. So why did you become a monk? I basically explained that. It was the teaching. Um, when, I, when I became a meditator, I wasn't expecting to become a Buddhist. I became a meditator like most people because I wanted to deal with anxiety and depression and overeating and all that kind of stuff. So oh, meditation is a good thing. Let me try it out. And then when I became a Buddhist, I wasn't expecting to become a monk. Okay? But the practice and the teachings led me to that point where I thought, well, you know, I have a pretty good life. You know, I have pretty much everything that a person could want. In a ways, I, 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 it's funny, I kind of feel like I correlate with the Buddha in a few things in that regard, like because um, basically we were about the same age. When I became a Buddhist was about the time he, became, he left you know, the palace. Um, <clears throat> but also, and I had you know, a pretty good life. Um, by the time, you know, the last couple of years, I was in the best shape of my life. I had the most money in my life. I had the most female attention in my life. I wasn't lacking for anything, right? I was, it was good. But the Buddha was pointing towards something better, right? And my practice was pointing towards something better. The teachings and the Buddha, you know, the confidence that I had in the Buddha said, okay, okay, you know, Buddha, I'm going to try this out. I'm going to take this leap of faith and I'm going to do this, right? And so I did. And so far, I don't regret it. And will I be a monk the rest of my life? I have no idea. I don't know. Anybody who says they're going to be anything for the rest of their life is really hurting for, for life to say, oh, really? Because that's been my experience. Anytime I thought I knew exactly how things were, life laughs and then throws you some curveballs. So I don't know if I'll be a monk the rest of my life, but it's probably the most meaningful and hardest thing that I've ever done. Definitely the hardest, but also the most meaningful. All right, friends, I've gone way over time, but it is the last day, and uh, all questions have been answered. So let's take a break and come back to finish out meditation. Can I just add something? Yeah. You mean for the gas smell?